it's difficult enough with, with pulpit notes. I would not have liked to imagine what it would be like without. As we have come out of the Disciples of Christ and the uh, what I call the American Restoration Movement, because I don't think the church ever needed to be restored, but it was our tradition. And one of the tenets of that tradition was that we would call <clears throat> Bible things by Bible names. And to Blake's point, it is never mentioned in the New Testament that there was a sermon delivered. Men, if you have a word of exhortation, deliver it now, is certainly said. So that's why I really do prefer the word of exhortation rather than calling it a sermon. It's a personal peculiarity, I will admit, but it's something that really I've, I've become fond of, and that's why Blake obliges me by calling it that. So anyway, I have called this word of exhortation this morning, Pride in the Bride, and it is a look at some of the things that Amos and Hosea say about God's people. And Amos and Hosea are two very, very different preachers preaching to the same audience at a similar time. They're very close in, in their time span that they're, they're teaching to the northern kingdom of Israel, the ones who had divided off at the time of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. <clears throat> so they're teaching to an audience in Samaria, and the idea is they're different preachers, and we can learn something about teaching from looking at their two styles. So that's one thing that, that prompted me to write this. And the other thing is the idea that they do, or we did do a study on the look of God's people, what God's people look at like in the minor prophets. So the message to the audience in Samaria, thank you. The message to the audience in Samaria is Judgment is coming, and there will be tribulation. And I know that judgment is coming to us because we're told in the New Testament that eventually all will stand before God and give an account for the things that they've done, whether good or bad. But we're also in a time of tribulation in this, in this life. And we, don't, we do know how it ended for the Samaritans, the northern kingdom, but we don't know how it's going to end for us. So we want to be prepared in our minds to deal with the things that come our way. And that's part of the thinking here. But as I studied for this, I looked at some of the things that the Assyrian army did, how the Assyrian army was put together, what their methods were. And they were actually the prototype of all modern armies. They were the first army to use a Corps of Engineers. They built siege ramps and they built towers with battering rams on them. And they would come into a city and just destroy it and enter the city. And Samaria was a great fortified city. It was amazing. It took them three years to besiege Samaria and actually conquer it. And you think about, you know, 10 months of the coronavirus and, and we're all about half crazy. Imagine three years of, of no food coming into the city. But they were, they were this army that the Lord God himself allowed to come together to besiege this city to put those people, I'll say, in their place. And I'm, I'm astonished at the work of God and how he did this. But Amos, Amos is talking to these people in the northern kingdom. He was sent up from Judah 
by the Lord, and he was a foreigner in the city, and he spoke of justice. He didn't seem to have any hope that these people would repent, although he was calling upon them to repent. He just didn't seem to, to, to tell them that he thought that they possibly could. Some people might call him in the modern vernacular a negative preacher. He was, as we don't hear of much anymore, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Hosea was different. He was an acting prophet. He was given something to do to show the people what is going on with his message. His acting was to take a wife from whoredom. And that's quite an act to have to perform, to show God, to show the people what God thinks of them. And you think about Ezekiel was told to lay on his side for over 400 days. But that's really not a comparison to what Hosea went through. And, you know, Jeremiah was given the exact opposite command. Don't marry. Things are going to be so bad, you don't want to have a wife and kids to be going through this tribulation with you. And they had other things that they did, uh, the figs and the waistband that Jeremiah had. And Ezekiel, tear a hole in the front wall of your house. I mean, how, how is that? You know, go, go and play with toys in the city square. So there's some things that they were asked to do. But the acting of Hosea is just so, so, I'll call it outrageous. But both of them have key passages and memorable passages. And obviously from, from Amos, prepare to meet your God is the one that is always used as what I call bumper sticker theology. But there was a, a, a commentator I was reading who so soft-pedaled this. It was, well, we don't really know what this meeting is. Perhaps it's like the same meeting that's Mount Sinai, and we don't really know exactly what this I will do to you is that God is talking about in this passage. And... We're talking about the creator of the universe and having a meeting with him and you're going to soft pedal it. I was astonished. And he did come around and, and present another side of the case. But the, the fact that he even presented that was a bit astonishing to me. But both of them close with a picture of God's people. And nine out of the 12 minor prophets, and I prefer the Jewish, again, one of my idiosyncrasies, I prefer the Jewish designation on this called the 12, because they were 12 prophets. They're called minor prophets because they didn't write as much as Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, the major prophets. It was a matter of writing. But if you think about Elijah, the greatest prophet of all until John the Baptist, he wrote nothing. So why would we refer to these guys as the minor prophets? So anyway, the 12, each and every one of them, I'm sorry, not each and every one of them, nine out of the 12 have a description of God's people at the, in somewhere in their prophecy. And it's a figurative type of picture. They are pictured as, first of all, being from all nations. And that is very important to the prophecy and to the picture of God's people. We see that in Galatians 26 through 29, not all that are the children are descendants of Abraham, that everyone, not just the Jews, is called into this people of God. They're described as being or possessing mountains or vineyards or trees. 
you are as a well-watered tree beside the stream. Very figurative. Come, they will come to the mountain of the Lord. You are the mountain of the Lord. They will come to you. But they have bountiful crops and new wine and oil and grain and harvests. But they're also described as a pure and righteous and holy people. And Zephaniah actually has one of the clearer descriptions of the people of God that is not so figurative. And he's, he's talking to the people of Judah before they were captured and taken into captivity. But I thought I would read that passage because it does give a good description and not a lot of figurative language that we have to sort out. So picking up in Zephaniah in chapter 3, in verse 8, I'm going to read till the end of the chapter, and that would be from Zephaniah chapter 8, or chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by my by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. And that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds, by which you, will, by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong, tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they will then feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Just an example of God's people from the minor, the 12, the minor prophets. No theocracy and no king after the judgment on the nations, the taking into captivity until Christ, of course. And after Christ, his people are all people. And I want to start here and catapult some things into a modern context that Israel was told by Amos and Hosea. Because all that was written before was written for our instruction so that we might have hope. And then I'm going to conclude with a, a description of what the people of Christ might should look like in this day and age. So I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I do know that judgment is coming. Second Corinthians tells us that. And I also know that we're going to face tribulation. Acts 14, 22, we enter the kingdom with much tribulation. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 10, 25? If they call the master Beelzebub, what then shall they say and do with the servants? So we're going to try to look at what the bride of Christ looks like made with, in, in her gown, made with the gold, wo made with fabric woven from the gold of Ophir.
messed that one up completely. Ah, so my question to you is, have we brought the spirit of the world into the church and thereby driving out the spirit of Christ? We live in insecure times. Where do we put our trust? Where is our security? We don't do this replacement, this substitution intentionally. We're immersed in the world. They say the best way to learn a foreign language is to be immersed in that culture where you don't get anything but that foreign language. We are immersed in the world, not because we don't choose to be not a part of it, but because that's where we live. And these things influence us. They happen to us. We don't choose them. They affect us. So do we bring that spirit in? I think of masks and social distancing. A mask reduces contact. Social distancing reduces contact. Personal contact brings oxytocin from our bloodstream into our minds, and it gives us a feeling. It makes us feel better to have oxytocin release. When we're close and we're communicating, when we shake hands and we hug, we get oxytocin, and it makes us feel better. When we social distance, this doesn't happen, and we have to have something. Our bodies want something to make us feel better. So what do we do? We go shopping. We get dopamine to replace our oxytocin. And dopamine, it gives us this feel good. It gives us bliss. It gives us euphoria. It helps our motivation. It helps our concentration. All good things. And it makes us feel good. And we like that. And it substitutes for the euphoria that we get from close personal contact. But on the downside, it causes impulsive behavior. So after we shop and feel good, we impulsively shop and feel good again. A hopeless circle. But it also, if it's lacking, it causes hopelessness and helplessness. And what are we feeling now with this pandemic? Many, many are feeling hopeless and helpless. And I, yes, sometimes I'm one of them. But what does Amos say in chapter 4? The most politically incorrect thing probably ever said. You cows of Bashan, you don't care, and you have no concern for the poor, but you say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. They're exalted. They're living the life of luxury, not caring about the poor. And they say, give me more. I want to drink and be happy. So what do I do? I point and click and say, Amazon, bring me that I might be fulfilled. And think about this. Fulfillment is not just their slogan. It's their name. And what am I doing when I do this? I'm substituting good pleasures of this world for the joy and glory of hope of heaven. And I have brought the spirit of the world into my life and replaced the spirit of Christ. Masks and social distancing are not the only things that cause this effect. We have all sorts of things that cause us depression or 
whether it be crashing a car, losing a job, anything that causes you depression will tend to make you want to go towards these things that fulfill you with the dopamine. And it's not just shopping. It's food. Chocolate. Oh, what did I heard the other day? Ice cream is therapy. Uh, I agree with that, but <laughs> uh, I, try, I try to keep it under control. Sports. We all love our sports team. Boy, if our sports team loses in the playoffs, how bad do we feel? And we're taking, you know, we, we're not even participating in that other than watching it. Uh, gambling, drugs, sex, all sinful things that, that add to this. But Art Adams is a Christian brother, and he does, he's a psychologist, and he treats people for everything from quitting smoking to depression, and he takes a scriptural view of it. If we need to put people in prison, incarcerate them because they're going to hurt somebody, that's what we do. If we need to give them drugs to bring them to the right mind so that we can treat them, that's what we do. But he says, cognitive behavioral therapy is the best way to treat people. And that is simply, ah, the world calls it self-help. It's, it's very simple. You recognize you have a problem. You learn what the problem is. You learn how to deal with the problem, you deal with the problem, and you maintain your dealing with the problem. It's just, that is exactly how we deal with sin. We learn, what we're sin we learn that we're sinful, we learn how, how that sin acts, and we learn not to act that way, and we maintain that. So I say that to make the point that shopaholics had a self-help guide that would help them with their shopping problem. And I looked at it and modified it a little bit to, to match up with what Art was teaching about you know, self-help and behavioral therapy. And basically it, it says to do things like, play, uh, keep a track, keep track of what you're doing. Keep track of how much time you spend doing something. Keep out track of how much money you spend. Uh, play mind tricks on yourself. I don't have to do this because I can do that. And with, with sin, that's obviously simple. Do something good instead of something bad. Um, avoid temptation. Avoid temptation. And of course, I just mentioned replacement therapy. Ask for help. Something I don't do enough. I'll go ahead and, and put this on you guys too. Something that we don't do enough because... I, I just, I'll leave it at that. Ask for help. Remember the larger goal. Remember we have hope. We have Christ has promised us hope of heaven. We have something to look forward to. We don't need to be downtrodden and substitute worldly things for our feel good. We substitute the hope and glory of Christ in heaven for all things on this earth. I could take this analogy a lot farther and say covetousness is idolatry and idolatry is adultery is Amos and especially Amos or especially Hosea and his acting say to the, the northern people. So Hosea in chapter 10, verse 13, warns us not to trust in ourselves. And I, as a mind key, called this the 13th 
because we have Hosea 10, don't trust in yourself, and Hosea 5, 13, where he tells them, do not trust in Assyria. Do not trust in the government that you're trusting in. And I'm going to bring this into a modern context and ask you, did Satan not say to Jesus, all of these kingdoms are mine? And did Jesus deny that? He didn't, didn't say one word about that. He said, no, trust God. And I'm not saying that governments are something we shouldn't participate in. I'm not saying don't vote. Some have taken that tact, but I'm not going to say that. I don't think that's the correct thing to say. But when we trust in government, we are trusting in something that truly does belong to Satan. And therefore, we should not trust in these things. They trusted in Assyria. And Hosea, Hoshi, excuse me, the king of Israel double-crossed the king of Assyria, Shalamanzer. And that's when Shalamanzer got mad and came and besieged Samaria and put these people to death in captivity. If we think that we're going to trust in Satan and his governments and not get double-crossed and not have him get angry, I think we need to trust again. But trust in government for the work of the church is substituting trust in God and his promise for men. Finally, I want to go to substitution and worship. We had talked a bit when we were talking about our format for our worship service and how to deal with the announcements. And a lot of times people say, well, announcements just aren't part of worship service because of this reason or that reason. And I disagree with that. Once again, I'm, I'm being contrarian. But the idea that announcements are a reason to pray. If we, if we approach announcements as a prayer request, and, and that's all we're really doing is saying, we're, these are things we're doing, these are things that are going on, and they all do need prayer. How does it not be part of worship? So I don't, I don't think we should really separate it out as, okay, we're going to go to worship now after we've done our prayer. But then again, my friend over at the congregation I was before I was here said, of course, of course we're worshiping together. It's corporate worship. But we should all always be worshiping throughout all of our lives. And so we're always worshiping, but when we come together, it's a corporate worship. And yes, there's some differences there. But the idea that we worship continually, we're living a life of worship. I want to read from Amos chapter 5 concerning the idea that worship would not be what it's supposed to be. A lot of times people will take this passage or passages like it and say, see, God didn't want people to sacrifice. He just wanted their hearts. And I don't think that's true at all. I think he gave them sacrifices so that they would prove their faith by their works, so to speak. Amos chapter 5, picking up in verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from the, me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sounds of your harp, but let justice roll down like waters and like righteousness like an everlasting, an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You carried along Sikath, your king, and Kiyun, your images of the star gods with you, you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says Yahweh, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Throughout the time that these people were wandering for 40 years, the tabernacle was in Kadesh Barnea. They could have gone up there, and I'm sure some did go up there and do the sacrifices that God wanted them to do. There has to be a righteous remnant in all of this. But for the most part, they had their idols with them. They had taken the things that they brought out of Egypt and made them part of their worship. And I say part of because they were still calling on Jehovah, saying they were Jehovah's, but they had these other things with them. But all of chapter 5 of Amos is about seek me that you may live. There's a historical sociological tenet called the sect or cult to denomination transition. Sociologists and historians, academics who study this thing, these things, have charted this from the time of Reformation, and it shows how groups usually come out of a larger group and become a sect or a cult. And this is well documented. It happened to the Pentecostals. It happened to the holiness movement. It happened to the charismatics. They were a, a pariah. They were set off to the side. They were not part of the mainstream. But as they grew, as they got influence, as they got wealth, they started to be accepted. And brothers and sisters, those of us from the Disciples of Christ and the American Restoration Movement, yes, it has happened to us also. But they come out of a larger group. Think of Paul and Judaism, the sect that they called away, and they're being abusive to it. Absolutely, Christianity came out of Judaism. But the, the ones that come out of these things, they, they believe absolutely that they are the church. They believe that they have the truth. We believe we are the church. We believe we have the truth. We're fervent, outspoken, and zealous. Usually, not the affluent, not the mainstream, but the lowly, the economically deprived, the troubled, ones who need deep spiritual worship. That's the definition of a sect for the most part. And when I define denomination, I'm not talking about a group with a world headquarters. I'm talking about a group that has a classic religious form. We have this to do, and we do it this way every single time. And a lot of times I hear, you didn't do three songs in a prayer, or three songs in a sermon. Or, you know, that we have to do it this way. Well, we don't. We don't have to do it this way. It is not a classic religious form. They become less fervent, less dogmatic. They become not as intent on 
the teachings that they started with. They become more accepting of all beliefs, of all morals. Oh, yeah, you can be divorced because of some reason other than adultery, for example. They become interested in the world around them. What's going on in politics? What's going on in sports? How can we, how can we solve these world problems, not through Christ, but through worldly ways? Why is this important? And why does it happen? How does it happen? Well, obviously, growth, numbers, affluence, acceptance. They lose that. Paul, you're insane. People quit calling you crazy because you have a different opinion. You have a very specific way of looking at the Bible and Scripture and what you're doing. And it becomes the I'm okay, you're okay. We're all just on the same path, going the same direction, and that's good enough. Lose the zeal. Become complacent. Content. The worship becomes proud. There's a difference in proud worship and humble worship. The fruit of the lips. Is it just singing? Or does that require us that we go out and tell people the truth of the gospel? That yes, baptism is required. You can't just say a prayer. I'm I'm not going to judge people who have only that information. I know there's a lot of people in the world that only have that information. I'll let God judge them. But for those of us who know, we better be saying, this is required. And because it is, there's no other way mentioned for a non-Christian to have forgiveness of their sins. A hundred years ago, the disciples of Christ and those of us who came out of that were known as the people of the book. We were the ones who knew the scripture. We were the ones who could quote scripture. We were the ones who could take them to Romans 6 and show them about baptism. But now, oh, we're the ones that sing a cappella. There's a a group of students that went over to our sister congregation, I guess. I I don't think that's a very good term. Uh, Some of our brethren that worship over at Embry Hills, they took a group of students over there because they didn't believe that there was a group that sang just a cappella. They wanted to prove it to these students. But we're no longer the people of the book. Every single person that claims to be Christian claims that they are going specifically by the Bible. And the difference is, how do we look at it? How do we, how do we interpret the scripture? Do we read it for what it says, first of all? Yes, that's what we call upon people to do. We don't immediately jump to what does this mean? We read it for what it says, first of all, and that is the big difference, and that's the main difference that we can point out to people. Because, as my friend Blake said the other day, a lot of the Calvinists will not even admit to the verbiage. They'll, they'll look at 1 Peter 3.21, where it says, baptism now saves, and say, it doesn't say that, when it absolutely does. So we... We lose our outspokenness. We lose our zeal. We bring the spirit of the world into the church. Thereby, therefore, 
driving out the spirit of Christ. The church is not a democracy and it's not a business. It's the ecclesia, translated every single time in the Old Testament as the assembly. It is the assembly of the people of God. It's closer to a family. And I thought perhaps even a tent city a tent city where the homeless and the downtrodden go because they have nowhere else to go. They have no money to buy their house, but you know what? They're all there for the same reason. And that's what we're supposed to be is here and one another for the same reason. The Bible is salvation history. It's a history book. It's not a book of history or science as in the secular sense, but it's the history of salvation. And we are a part of that. The last thing Jesus said was, go and tell about me making disciples and teaching them to be baptized and then teach them some more. And then he says, I will be with you until the end of the age, which takes it from the apostles through all of history right down to us until the end of the age. And that's what we are supposed to be doing. So finally, why do I say these things? To exonerate myself because I'm guilty. So I'm going to broadcast this out on all of you guys so I can feel better because you guys are doing it too. Well, that's not really the idea. The idea is more to recognize that there is sin, but once we put that behind us, we need to be productive kingdom citizens, not just fighting the battle with Satan on our own terms, but going out and reaching to others and saying, come with me, walk with me, let's seek the Lord together. Do I say this to ask for help? Yes, I do. Most of you don't know me from five years ago or four years ago. You don't know how zealous I was. You don't know the complacency and the contentment that set in because you didn't know me then. But I'll tell you, I have become complacent with my outreach. I don't reach out. I don't go out and give away Bibles. I don't have a Bible in my truck to hand to the homeless man on the street corner that has a $5 bill in it if he'll bother to look. I've come short. I've learned some other things. I didn't fall away completely. I've learned to teach among our brethren a little better, but I've lost something. And yes, complacent. That word reminded me of place setting. And I thought, you, you, you've seen my sign. You know how much I love wood and, and the, the finishes on it. And it's beautiful, beautiful oak table with the finest china and the best flatware, all seven pieces in it beautiful napkins and doilies, and it is wonderful, except for there's no food and no people. And that's what complacency is. It's, it's inanimate. It's inert. Do I say it to raise awareness? Yes, I say it to raise awareness. Be reminded, we are the church of the living God. We have a higher calling. Amos, in chapter 8, verse 11, talks about a famine, a dearth, 
a shortage, a lack of. But he's not talking about food. He's talking about looking for the word of God. There will be people seeking that. In this time of helplessness and hopelessness, I'm sure they're there. Are we seeking them? The helpless and the hopeless are there. Will we be there? I will finally want to read from Hebrews chapter 12 that compares the sinfulness that was the subject of the old covenant. Here is how you deal with sin to the glory of the new covenant and the perfect law of liberty. From Hebrews chapter 12, picking up in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and to gloom and to whirlwind, and to a blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the commandment. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of angels. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of things created, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And with the words of the Hebrew author in mind, I will let Blake lead us in a song.